Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. It seems almost unnecessary to preach a sermon after that skit that was so powerfully done and uh, just made me remember that everybody who has a true encounter with Jesus will be marked by that encounter forever. If you have any doubt whether you know Jesus or not, you haven't met him, because when you do, it will mark you for the rest of your life. And it's our hope that everyone in this room will have that encounter, that life-changing, permanently marking encounter with Jesus Christ over the course of your life. This morning, I want to bring a message, and because we've already heard so much, I'm going to keep it as short as I can today. Um, May the Lord forgive me for the injustice I have to do to this rich passage in the short time I have. But I want to feature Jesus Christ, the King. And that illustration will make sense to you over the course of this message. The passage that Eugene read comes from the opening of the book of Colossians. It is one of the richest passages that praises Jesus Christ and declares who he is to us. And woven throughout that entire passage is one undeniable idea, and that is that Jesus Christ is God himself, and he is our king. Who can forget the 2005 NCAA Elite Eight game between Illinois and Arizona? Raise your hand if you remember that game. If you're a sports fan, if you're an Illinois fan, that was almost life-changing. They were down by 15 points with four minutes left. It looked like it was all but over. And then the Illini reached deep and found something in their reservoir, and they staged an incredible rally, closing that gap of 15 points. In fact, in 50 seconds... They scored 12 points, and in a buzzer beater, they tied it up, and in overtime, they went on to win that game 90 to 89. Great story if you're an Illini fan, devastation if you loved Arizona. And the reason that that goes down in history as one of the greatest college basketball games ever is because there's something about a comeback that everybody loves. You could dim the screen there. Everybody loves a comeback. And the reason we love a comeback is because just when you think it's game over, there's still something left. And the reason we're so drawn to that idea is because life beats all of us up. You haven't actually lived, if you haven't experienced that taste of defeat where you feel like, is there any future after this? This turn of events, this news, this burden is so great, is there anything else? How do you keep hoping when it's so evident that the game is over for you? And we've experienced that, and many of us will experience it more than once in our lives, and so this idea of a comeback holds such hope out to us that maybe, just maybe, the end isn't always the end for us. 
You know, last Sunday was Palm Sunday. The children brought home palm branches, and that's to symbolize, remember, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem in the last week of his earthly life, there were cheering crowds lining the streets, and they welcomed him, waving palm branches, lining the streets with palm branches, and he rode in on a donkey. That was a very symbolic welcome. It's the kind of greeting that the people usually reserved for a triumphant king returning from a victorious battle, and they were saying to him, welcome back, king. You won a great victory for us. So that's how Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, clearly a winner on top of his game, and everybody loved Jesus. The truth is that people were hoping for a Messiah, and that hope was really at a crescendo around the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem. <clears throat> what they hoped for above all things was that they would finally find a new ruler who would shed the oppression of Rome and would begin a new era of greatness and justice for Israel. They remember the stories that their forefathers had handed down of the greatness of Israel under King David and under King Solomon, and they longed to see that day again, and it had been prophesied that the kingdom of David, his throne, would be restored one day, and so everyone was hoping, but the mistake they made was that they thought this would be a man who would create revolution and then restore the earthly kingdom of Israel. So within a week, it became clear that this Jesus from Nazareth was going to be a terrible disappointment. He had already run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders. They had clearly called him an enemy, and he wasn't exactly looking to defend himself. He made no attempt to rally the people to his support. And so the same people who were cheering him a week before, by Friday, were shouting for him to be crucified. See, the problem was that Jesus didn't fit the typical profile of a leader. He lived his whole life on the margins of society, among the least and the poorest of people. He performed incredible public miracles, but then always tried to suppress the publicity that would follow after that. What kind of leader does that? He does something only God could do, and then he tells everyone to be quiet. Whenever he was slandered in public, he never opened his mouth to defend his honor. And while most leaders gathered a very impressive entourage, when you looked at Jesus' crew, there was nothing to write home about. It was the most mediocre bunch of blue-collar guys you could ever hope to assemble. And this ragtag group was following him. They're like, hey, this is my posse. Check him out. Everyone's like, that's the new leader, the new king. These guys are going to be his cabinet. And everyone looked at Jesus and yawned. He was totally unimpressive. In fact, the closest he ever came to greatness was that he constantly rubbed, out, rubbed shoulders with the great leaders of his day. But whenever he interacted with them, he never showed any signs of trying to curry their favor or win their support. In fact, often when he interacted with the most powerful men in society, he pointed a finger at them and said, you are failing to uphold the value and the role of your office. This Jesus wasn't popular, and he wasn't trying very hard to become popular. And so soon it became evident to people that this Jesus was a powerless, useless fraud. One week ago, they put all their hopes in him, but when they watched Pilate sentence him to death at the cheers of the crowds, 
And when they watched him beaten mercilessly, bloodied, and then hung on a cross, nailed, and when they watched him breathe his last breath, was pierced in his side, and all that blood ran down, and it was over, they said, well, that seals it. What's the point of believing in a Messiah to whom this kind of thing can happen? And so the people, including his own followers, scattered in dejection. And they said, well, he came close. Too bad the game is over. In fact, on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, when Jesus had arisen on the very first Easter, he found a couple of his followers who thought the game was over. And he walked with them, and they didn't know who he was, but he spoke to them. He opened up scriptures to them. He identified himself indirectly. And later they said, wow, were not our hearts burning when he was walking with us? And they realized who had been walking with them and what that symbolized, that Jesus had risen, that he had staged the greatest comeback. And the text says, within an hour, they found themselves walking back to Jerusalem to truly begin their journey of discipleship following this king who they thought was down for the count, but had staged an unbelievable comeback. On Friday, Jesus wore the crown of thorns and his head was bloodied. He wore that crown of thorns as a suffering servant, but on Sunday when he rose from the dead, he replaced that crown of thorns with the victorious crown of a king. He did not... He did not rise from death to continue being the suffering servant, but to rule undisputed as the only one who has the right to sit on the throne. If nothing else would prove that he is God, then walking out of his own grave should establish that forever. And so we worship a king who wore two crowns, but the crown we see today is not the bloody crown of thorns. It is the crown of a triumphant king. And that matters. That has to press down on our hearts as Christians. And I know that not everyone in this room has made a decision to trust Jesus. I hope that you will see things and hear things in this church that will lead you forward in that journey of life. But this morning, I want to speak primarily to those of you who have trusted Jesus as your Savior. I want to preach the gospel to you. And an indispensable part of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is not simply your Savior, but He is your King. Forget that, and none of this will really make a lot of sense in the long run. And so I want to talk about two important aspects or implications of the kingship of Jesus Christ in our lives. And the first is that we must recognize his authority. I'm on the sixth book in a series of novels about the beginning of the nation of England. They call it the United Kingdom for a reason. England used to be a bunch of little kingdoms of little kings who each were big fish in small ponds, And under the leadership of a man named Alfred the Great, an entire united kingdom was established. They call him Alfred the Great because he alone succeeded in bringing all these little kings together and recognizing him as the one great king over all the kings. He was, in fact, a king of kings. And that is how the modern nation of England, with great bloodshed and lots of political struggle, was born. And the most important part of Alfred's journey was convincing all the other kings 
to recognize that he was, in fact, king over all of them. Anyone can claim to be a king, but his authority over our lives must be recognized or we will, we will run afoul of him and his kingdom. At the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, there were false teachers that had sown themselves through the, the dough of the, the, Corinthian, the Colossian church. And here's what they were teaching. They were teaching that human life is governed by aeons, just like the, uh, the insurance company, aeon. Um, they, that's a Greek word for spiritual beings. What they taught was that there were all of these emanations or manifestations of God that could be ranked in hierarchy like Pokemon. And so you would have this one being who was an evolved form of another being, and you could say all these angels and all these celestial beings were reflections or manifestations of God, and Jesus was one of them. Maybe a particularly nice one, but he was just one of the expressions of God on the earth. This was clearly heresy, and Paul wrote this letter, and he opened with a strong teaching in the first chapter in order to establish once and for all that Jesus is not one expression of God, but here's what he says. Jesus is not, he is not an aeon, a shadow or a reflection of God, but he is the image. That's the Greek word icon, which is the exact same as our English word icon. He is the exact representation, listen, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. In other words, Jesus Christ was God encased in flesh. The writer of Hebrews goes on to kick it up a notch. He says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And listen, the exact representation of, of his being. Exact representation is the Greek word character. It's interesting. He was the exact representation of God. And Jesus did nothing to deny this. In his own words, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, there's so much that cannot be said in the shortness of time. And so if you love this text, Please go on and reflect on it on your own. We will just rush through this. But Paul goes on and he says this. And this is an interesting thing that has been twisted by many people, greatly misunderstood. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. A lot of people mistakenly believe that means that Jesus was a created being like us. That he's just the first human being like all the rest of us. What if God were one of us, Joan Osborne saying? And a lot of people believe that what this verse teaches is, yeah, Jesus is just a slob like one of us. He's a first slob, but a slob nonetheless. Nothing could be further from the truth. In the context of what Paul's writing and in the context of ancient Near East culture, the idea of the firstborn was very important. It's not the case anymore today. As a firstborn, I got nothing special. Nothing. The only thing I got was I got to drive first because you can't fight the calendar. I turned 16 before my brother. And that's about all I ever got, except maybe extra space. But in Jesus' day, the firstborn was very different. He was the legal and true representation of his father. In business dealings, if the son, the firstborn son, showed up and shook your hand, 
If he signed a contract, if he made a promise, it was as good and as binding as if the father himself had done it. What is more, with respect to the other siblings in the family, the firstborn was more like a second parent, a second father than a sibling. He had authority and rights and privileges that the other kids simply did not have. In many Asian families, that's still the way it's run, isn't it? Not in my family, but poor Noah. But but in a lot of Asian families and Confucian heritage, that's one of the things we taught. In Eastern culture, the firstborn was about position, priority, privilege, and rank. And that is really what Paul intended to say. Not only is is Jesus the representation of God, but relative to us, he ranks far above any of us, even the greatest of us. And then what follows is this long list of affirmations. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You may have seen Louis Giglio preach about laminin, the cross-shaped connective molecule that holds everything together. And then it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that, and here's the climax of it, in everything he might have the supremacy. This is one of those rare occasions where I prefer the New American Standard Bible's translation above all the others because that says, so that in all things he might have the first place. I could go on for a week probably talking about just those verses. Unfortunately, I'm not going to say anything about them. In your case, maybe fortunately. But here's the bottom line of what Paul's trying to argue as he crescendos these words. What he's saying is, Jesus is greater than you could ever imagine. If you, like so many others, underestimate Jesus, you will totally miss out on the story of who he is. If you see Jesus and you yawn in boredom, if you're falling asleep right now, you have missed completely the true story of who Jesus is. If you can be bored by Jesus, you have never met him. You may think you're a Christian by coming to a church, by believing that this is the Bible and this is the word of God. But if Jesus bores you, if you can negotiate with him, ignore him, you have never met him. And this then must become the consuming obsession of your earthly life, is that I should see a Jesus so compelling, so truly represented, that it would be impossible for me to walk away from him and go, meh, meh. I mean, I want you to think about this. The bottom line of what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is God. He ranks highest above us. He is rightfully king over all of us. If that's true and he is God, then he cannot be negotiated with casually. He cannot be disregarded when it suits us. Have you ever knowingly done that? Man, this would be such a great, sweet situation. If I could just forget this nagging conscience and kick Jesus kind of over there temporarily. Listen, Jesus, look at that. The sinner over there. And then you're like, wouldn't it be just so sweet if when it suited you, you could just turn off the Jesus switch and go, you know, 
please, just give me a pass. But if you can do that, then this God of yours is a worthless God. If you can negotiate with your God, if you can neglect your God, if you can disregard your God, he is a puny God, not worthy of anything. Why bind yourself to such a weak God? Why waste your time trying to follow a God who is only going to be worshipped on your terms? What's the point of a God who is just like one of us? If you can treat your God the way you treat your earthly father, if you can treat your God the way that you treat your president or your brother or your boss, then this is no God at all. The problem in the American church is that we have forgotten what the concept of God is. How big, how great, how fearful it is. So that when we read, God does not want you to do this, we should not hear, hey, listen, it would be awesome if you would seriously reconsider. We should hear, God, the God of the universe, has a better plan for me. And by his authority, he says, do this. And do not do this. And if that does not cause me to quake, then I do not know God. I just know a good advisor. Tony Robbins in the sky, who tells me, yes, I can. Do you understand the argument? That if this is the God you follow, you are wasting your time. For God to be truly God, he must be the undisputed, unquestioned authority in your life. That is the definition of God. And anything less is something you have invented so that you get the benefits of eternal security, but you bypass all the authority which is rightfully his. One of the things we celebrate on Easter in the risen Christ, is that we have a king. And while this idea of authority may seem very repugnant to us as Americans, it should be good news because we also have a king who loves us, is for us, who knows all things, can accomplish all things, and he says, I love you. Your welfare, your future are in my hands. If you follow me, I will make sure that you experience everything you're supposed to experience. Some of you are at a crossroads in your life. You have a major decision to make. And the reason it's so tense to be you right now, the reason you are so bunched up inside, so lost for direction, may be because the God in your life has been relegated to a part-time advisory role. When you have a king one of the beautiful things is it takes all the mystery out of what to do next. You go to your king and say, what now, Lord? And he says, do this. And you walk away with a mission. To have a king is a very comforting thing because you're not rolling the dice hoping that what you decided for yourself will turn out well. And so he says, if you see God for who he truly is meant to be, then the natural consequence is that he will have the first place in everything. I think one of the greatest 
barometers of whether I really walk with Jesus or not is whether he truly has the first place in everything in my life. There's a very American saying, the heart wants what the heart wants. That's a way of saying, look, I know the Bible and all this other stuff says it's probably, but look, what are you going to do? The heart wants what the heart wants. What am I going to do? I got to obey the heart. The heart, do this. I'm like, I can't argue with the heart. You could if you had a king. You could if you had a God who is greater than your heart. And if that's the case, if Jesus is not really first place, the, the response is not guilt and shame and woe is me. It's to recognize something. I'm sending off the alarm for you that what you thought was God was a God who is weak enough to be ignored at your convenience, who is arriving and showing up at your disposal, at your beck and call. I think it's time we put our foot down and said, if God is God, he should make us quake in our boots with the majesty and authority he brings. I think we'd be more nervous if a celebrity walked into this room than if Jesus did sometimes. And I think it's really important for us as part of the church in America that we get right who God is. When we talk about theology, I'm not talking about whether you understand what supralapsarianism is. Theology at its very base is to have the right concept of what God is. If that's distorted, who cares how many long words you know? If God is not God to you, then it won't help that you could be his biographer. That you could write the authoritative Wikipedia entry on God. If God is not God, then what is he to you? This has been, for me, a real invitation to reflect Because one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that you walk through life assuming you're on the right team. Thinking that because you say stuff to other people, it's all good with you. And I've paused to really think about this. Why do I do what I do? And one of the things I'm coming to learn is every day I need to pause for a moment and reaffirm that God is God, not me. That's a lifelong journey for us. And I want to invite you to really consider whether Jesus Christ is king in your life, whether he has the first place, whether he has the power to change a decision that you desperately want in your heart. Because he says it's more important for the things I'm doing in the world and in other people's lives that you bend your will to mine. Does he have the power to change your mind to change a decision, even to trump the strong pull of your heart. Because if he doesn't, then by definition, he can't be first place, can he? First place is first place. We know that in sports, if at the end of that game, the Arizona cat said, hey, we're only lost by one point. We're winners too. He said, all right, let's share the trophy together. How would we have felt? No, it's only one point, but you're losers. 
You don't go on. We go to the next round because of that one point. First place is first place. There is no co-first place. Here's a second implication to Jesus being king. If the first one was meant to awaken us to his authority, the second is meant to give us peace. We must rest in his victory. Paul says that the primary work of Jesus on the cross was the work of reconciliation. When he says that we were once alienated from God, that's a very interesting Greek word. It's a word borrowed from the business world. It literally means that our ownership had been transferred to another person. That by our sin, our legal ownership had been transferred to another realm, another person altogether. But in the work of Christ on the cross, he reconciled us, meaning he changed the contract. He repurchased us. He switched the ownership back to the rightful father. This is the work which Jesus accomplished. And I think the best way to really tell it is through the story. Imagine, and this is, a, this is not going to be earth-shatteringly new, but this is one way we can think about what Jesus did. Imagine a father who had many children, and all but one of them rejected him as their father. Said to him, we don't really need you, we don't want you, we like your stuff, but frankly, your authority bugs us. And so they left him, and they went on to do horrible things that so besmirched his name and dishonored his household. The rebellion, the rejection, and all the evil which they did outside of his house could not stand. He could not just ignore it. But because he was a true father, and anyone who's a father understands this, no matter what your children do, if you have a true father's heart, you will find that your heart aches for your child even when they are being ugly. Even when on one moment you wish you could punch them in the face, the other moment you want them back. That's the confusing thing about being a dad is you want to kill them and then bring them back from the dead. You know, like the, the father's heart is whatever you do, I ache whenever my children are far from me. When they're mad at me, when I'm mad at them, I'm not in a good place. But here's the thing. If you are also a just father, you cannot let that rejection and evil doing stand. You can't just brush it under the rug and say, come back, because it will get worse and it will change your very nature and character. And so this father did the unthinkable and he turned to the one son who had not rejected him, who had not done evil. He said, listen, I long for reconciliation with all my children, but it's impossible for that to happen unless we deal with this punishment. But they're all too weak to bear the flogging I must give. If I give that to them, they won't survive the punishment. You're strong. You've eaten at my table all these years. You are different from all of them. You would survive it, but it will be horrible. 
I know the injustice of it, son. You're the only one who didn't reject me. But I'm asking you to do something because my heart aches for all the other children I cannot have fellowship with. I want them home again. And so he asks his one righteous son, would you be doomed in their place so that I can get them back home? And all the father's children who acknowledged the great gift of their older brother would find that they could come home be reconciled to their father, everything would be forgiven and forgotten and they could be a family again. This is the story of the gospel and Jesus Christ is the obedient firstborn. And when he won, we also win. But what he did is of benefit only to those who acknowledge what he has done. How sad for those who didn't hear the news, or who heard it but doubted it, or said, who cares? Who does he think he is? I'm fine on my own. I prefer it out here. I started out this message talking about the Illini victory over Arizona. My good friend who was my roommate at U of I, watched that game, and the following Sunday, he dressed his son in orange and blue to celebrate. Well, going to the same church was another one of our friends, an alum, who went to U of I, and he saw my friend's son and said, what is your problem? Why would you dress him in orange and blue today? We should be hanging our heads in shame. So, of course, my friend said, what are you talking about? Well, they blew it last night. He goes, oh, my goodness, you don't know. They won. And this other friend said, what? It turned out that seeing them down 15 points with four minutes left, he couldn't take it anymore, and he turned off his TV. And he missed the greatest comeback in Illini history. I can't shake the feeling that a lot of people I care about turned off the TV early. They're going to pass over the threshold of death and won't know that we won. They're going to live all their lives thinking we're losing, that we lost, that it's foolish to hope. And they're not even going to know that you can win, that in fact we did win. Paul finishes with these words, and I like the New Living Translation the best. This truth we believe of the gospel, you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Why do we preach the gospel to people who are already converted? Why do we retell the story which is so familiar to all of us. Because belief and faith not reinforced fades over time. Everything which we don't actively reinforce fades. Wedding promises, claims of love, New Year's resolutions, to name a few. At the moment we make them, they seem so powerful and life-giving, but when they are not revisited, they will fade from our fallible 
and finite minds and hearts. And so we preach the gospel to the already saved. And we retell the story as often as we can because we are called to continue to believe this truth because life will challenge that belief. There will be days when the redeemed will feel like we're losing. Like life is hopeless. This burden is too heavy and there is no reason to hope. This past week, I said goodbye to a very good friend of mine named Rich. I've known him for 20 years. He is a very good friend. And he finally succumbed to his battle with pancreatic cancer. He was a medical miracle. For over three years, he continued to live and thrive, and the doctors could not explain it. But this past week, God finally called him home. He leaves behind a widow in her mid-30s and three young children. My heart breaks thinking about what life is going to be like for them in the next year. And the reason I mention my friend Rich is because he makes that last verse come alive for me. Before Rich died, he gave me a tremendous gift. When death seems very far away, it's easy to claim that you believe in just about anything. But I know this. When your death is around the next corner, it brings great honesty. It's like the polygraph of the heart. And at death's door, what you really believe and hope in will become suddenly very clear. I know this because I worked in the geriatrics ward for a year and I watched lots of old people die and many of them died in absolute terror and fear. They went to their death flailing in anger and terror because they had no idea what was on the other side and they could not handle that moment. Death is the great truth teller of where your hope has always been placed. And the gift that Rich gave me is that as he knew, and all the rest of us, we were in some measure of denial. We were still praying for a miracle, but somehow God had told him in his heart, I'm calling you home. Mercifully, he let the rest of us catch up to that awareness. But he knew. And knowing he was going to die... I watched not a man flailing about in panic and uncertainty, but a man over whose heart peace was washing like a river. I remember a week before he died, I went to see him in his bedroom. That's where this photo was taken, and we just talked. And I was searching his eyes, Because the truth is, even though I'm a pastor, watching my friend die was like a slap in my face. It made me wonder, what do I really believe here? See, I've banked my whole life and my career on this gospel. But watching my friend die, it was like a reality check for me. Have I wasted my whole life? Or is this real? Is this promise, this hope for real? And I'm not suggesting that what Rich gave me was proof. What he gave me was hope. When you see someone about to finish here, and he has this unshakable certainty that he's going home, 
that his faith is going to be vindicated. Boy, it does something to your own faith to be by that bedside. I have the honor of giving his eulogy tomorrow evening. And one of the things I'm going to say is that our lives are full of examples of how to live well. But we rarely get the gift of watching somebody die well. My friend died well because he died continuing to believe the gospel. And his dying belief strengthened my own faith immeasurably. We're all going to go over that threshold of death someday. If Jesus does not come back in our lifetime, then as much as you jog and as many salads as you eat, you cannot fight it off forever. One day, all of us will walk over that curtain. I truly hope that everyone in this room will cross that threshold with peace and not terror. You know, Christianity is a movement that you join. It is a way of life that you adopt. It's a belief system you adhere to. It's a community that you become part of. But before it is any of those things, it is a relationship you enter into with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, who is our king. Some of you have put that off for a very long time, but you've got to stop putting it off. You won't have the life that you were born to have until that relationship begins. And even right now in this place, without a long running start, just right now at this moment, you can begin that journey simply by saying, God, show me that this is true. Convince me in my heart. Help me to trust you. That's all I'm going to say this morning. Why don't we bow together? I think as we celebrate Easter... That Easter should be filled with joy, but I believe it should also be filled with some real reflection. Who is Jesus to you? And I say none of this to indict anyone or to produce guilt. It is meant for you to know your own spiritual condition. Is Jesus the first place in everything in your life? Maybe not perfectly so, maybe not with an unbroken record, but is that the gripping desire of your heart, what you long for him to be? If your answer is yes, then you have seen and known Jesus correctly. And he will walk with you and strengthen you in that journey. But if the answer is no, then a prayer, a simple prayer can help you. 
God, it's clear I know you a little, but I haven't seen you as I should. Open the eyes of my heart that when I see you, I know who you really are. And if you are a Christian, then I think a simple prayer can be for us this morning. Would you take your place as the king over my life? I want to stop negotiating with you. I want to stop turning you on and off at my convenience. Be king over everything. I also want to remind you that you don't have to make your own righteousness. That the obedient firstborn son of God was doomed for you so that you could be reconciled to the Father. This is a great hope which life will try every day to take away from you. And so you are called to keep on believing. May your hope rest in what Jesus has done and never in anything else. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to leave you now in the quietness of this room to pray to your God. Let's pray. If you are somebody in this room right now who has never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've been a churchgoer for some time, but you can't really say that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your King. I'm going to invite you to change that in faith. And please don't look at the struggling Christians the ones who've gotten it wrong, the ones who are making a mess of things, don't look at them and say, see, I, I don't want to join that. Look at those who love Jesus, who know him, and look at the lives of those who walk with him and see there's peace there. There's strength. There's joy. It is what your heart has longed for. If you can't make that final decision now, would you at least pray this in faith? Jesus, don't give up on me. Keep pulling the rope in. Draw me closer. Someday, soon, I want to be ready. And Jesus, I thank you. We thank you. Because we were doomed and we would never have survived the punishment. You were doomed in our place and you survived it. Thank you for not attaching a heavy price tag for us. This gift is free. And God, we also rejoice that you did not just save us, but you also promised to reign in our lives as king. that is good news because without you we will flounder and we will wander so open the eyes of our heart 
Help us to know you truly. And then we pray in faith, would you become the first place in everything in our lives? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.